Welcome, everybody. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce Trish Critic, who is from the University of Washington, Seattle. Uh, Trish is, is an incredible medical educator, um, has given national talks on how to give whiteboard talks, and today is combining her ability to give a whiteboard talk um, with expertise as well as um, combining the topic of mechanical ventilation and what we do before ECMO. Trish uh, trained in Connecticut um, for her uh, medical school um, and then well, went to Yale for undergrad, then Connecticut, University of Connecticut for medical school, and then did her internship, residency, and chief residency um, at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. She then did her pulmonary and critical care fellowship at, um, in the Harvard Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship Program, and then stayed on there as faculty before going to the University of Washington in Seattle, where she's the medical director for critical care as well as a premier medical educator and, um, and more importantly, I guess, a very, very good friend. Thank you, Trish, for being here today. Thank you. Good? All Thanks, right, Tim. that was even better the yeah. second time. I know. And I'm gonna actually learn a little bit about Maryland and the people at Maryland so I can learn as well as teach today. So with that in mind as a kind of our outline, our, our structure for today, it would be helpful for me to know who's in the room before I start. So, Who's a student? Anyone a student in the room? <laughs> All right. You're like, great. I just had to be identified as the only student. You are, you are the only person who's totally protected from ever being asked a question. So there you go, OK? All right. <laughs> yeah, all of a sudden, everyone's like, I'm a lifelong learner. Yeah, everyone's hand goes up. Um, who are there any house staff residents in the room? OK, pulmonary and critical care fellows. Okay. Critical care, non-pulmonary critical care fellows. You're like, oh crap, I raised my hand for the wrong one. Okay, I got the idea. Um, faculty. Respiratory therapists. I knew you guys were cohorted over here. <laughs> Nurses. Anybody category that I've forgotten? Videotapers? Yes, thank you. Awesome. AV extraordinaire. All right. Wonderful. Um, we're going to start off by talking about the recommendations that came out of this expert group that was interdisciplinary, international group of experts on ARDS who came together to put, together, put forth six guidelines about the management of ARDS. And I'm going to start with the sixth recommendation. The sixth recommendation was there is a paucity of evidence to make a definitive recommendation on ECMO. I know there are a lot of people in this room who love ECMO. And I know there's probably some people in the room who think we should be doing more of it or, or doing it earlier or doing it in different patient populations. And so I'm going to acknowledge that and I'm going to say we're not talking about ECMO anymore today. Okay? So that was the sixth recommendation. We won't talk about, we're going to talk about what can you do before you get to ECMO. And you might say, well, Trish, there's a lot of more ECMO in the world. There are more places that are doing ECMO, more often for different indications, and I would agree with that, but I'll tell you two quick stories that make, it, make me say that I don't think that's true everywhere you go. So when I left the Brigham, I was faculty there before I went to the University of Washington. I left in 2010, and when we had a medical ICU patient who needed, or who we felt would benefit from ECMO, what we did was we bundled them up and wheeled them across the Skybridge to Children's Hospital, where we would cannulate them in the PICU and then manage them in the PICU. Now, Maybe it's not the University of Maryland, but the Brigham Women's Hospital is a reasonable hospital, and that was the state of ECMO until a couple years ago there. The University of Washington, when I arrived there in 2010, we didn't do any ECMO. We do now do some ECMO. But I would say on that spectrum of early adopters and completely skeptical cynists, we tend towards this end of the spectrum, and we were late, later adopters of ECMO. And even now at our institution, we do a lot of stuff before we go to ECMO, and I think it's good to think about all those things that we can or might think about trying for patients before we go there, okay? So with that, I'll move forward with the recommendations. The, and these are guidelines, right? They're not, you have to do it, and I'm gonna talk about that as we go. So there were two big things that the guidelines supported. They said, we give strong support to two things that we should do in managing patients with ARDS. One of them, I think, is gonna be at the tip of everyone's tongue. What, what did they say we should do? Yeah, low tidal volume ventilation. They said. Okay, every patient with ARDS should get a tidal volume that's, and they said four to eight cc's per kilo ideal body weight 
and that the plateau pressure should be less than 30 centimeters of water. And they, you know, that's based on ARMA for two, from 2000 and a bunch of other data that they combined and looked at. And they said that was a strong recommendation. Now what they didn't say, we were talking about this the other day, is they didn't say six cc's per kilo. They said four to eight cc's per kilo. And they also said, and there's this emerging thing about delta pressure, delta P, driving pressure, and maybe that's gonna evolve into something that we do in terms of figuring out our tidal volumes and our PEEP, but right now, we're gonna say four to eight cc's per kilo. Does that resonate with what you guys do? Yeah, I don't think that's very controversial. They didn't say it had to be volume control. They didn't say it had to be pressure control. They said target eight cc's per kilo. So you could do that with whatever ventilator mode you wanted to do. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna belabor this because I wanna get to what are we gonna do beyond that. What do you think the second thing was that they said, this we strongly recommend, you should do this. So one thing was high PEEP, another one was being conservative with fluids. Others? Proning, it ends up that proning was the second thing that they said in patients with moderate to severe ARDS, they recommended proning. And they did say it for moderate to severe. Now, this is based on a, a series of smaller studies followed by a big-ish big trial, right? 340 patients or so. In what's the trial? Proceva, right? So Proceva. published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2013 that showed a mortality benefit to proning. And they did things differently in terms of proning in that trial than we did in the past. What did they do differently about proning? They did it longer and they did it, say it again. Well, they did it more than once, you're right. So they did it until they reached a threshold, but they did it earlier. When I was a trainee, and I know there's some other people in this room who can have said that in their lives and can think of it. We prone people when, when they were near death, exactly. Right before they died, we said, maybe we should try proning them. And this is totally different. They said, let's do it earlier. Now, I, I said I was going to talk about evidence-based medicine. And you told me a second ago, they prone these people for how long? 16 hours. That's not actually what the recommendation is in terms of what they said in these guidelines in terms of proning. They said something slightly different. They said proning for at least 12 hours. Now, why did they say that? Well, they extrapolated from smaller studies that were done earlier where the subgroup analysis of the sicker patients, people with severe ARDS, <coughs> got a benefit and they weren't prone for 16 hours. So they weren't ready to go with the, only what Proceva said. So, I know somebody here is an evidence-based uh, evidence medicine guru. I think you have two spaces to think about this. One is, if you're going to do something that a trial says you do exactly what they did in the trial because that's what they proved has a mortality benefit. And the other side of that is we get principles for management of patients from trials and sometimes we extrapolate from them. Two kind of different camps of how we manage patients. I'm going to take a poll of the room. Who's of the mindset that we say this is what they did in the study. It's this set of interventions that's shown to give whatever that benefit is Let's do that. Who's, who's in that camp? Whoop. <laughs> the dangers of a shock talk. Be brave. Raise your hand. Okay, so who's of the mindset of, I'd rather take the spirit of whatever they studied and I'm going to integrate it into what I do? Okay. Does anyone want to make an argument for their position? No? Okay, I won't. I think, I think you could make an argument for either one. Oh, yeah, you're right. So it's, it's not just neuromuscular blockers. It's yeah. the magic of cisatricurium. So don't start putting vecuronium in there. Yeah, fair enough. And maybe that's right. I don't think we know the answer to that, right? So I think you can make a strong argument for either. And what I would argue, and I will put this on the people who raise their hands for being attendings in the room, is it's our job as we're talking and teaching in the ICU to explain which of those models we're working in and why. Because I don't think there's actually a right answer. I think sometimes you might justify one and sometimes you might justify the other, but you have to explain your reasoning. And so what they did was they didn't say match Proceva. They said you should prone for at least 12 hours. 
I want to talk about, I said that the pathophysiology of what we're doing matters. So why is it pathophysiologically plausible that proning would have a mortality benefit? Because before that, we saw that proning had an oxygenation benefit, but we didn't necess necessarily see a mortality benefit. Why might proning help? It's a fellow level question. Some fellow want to tell me why proning might help? More recruitment. Uh, you take away the weight of the heart. Great. You Keep going. I'm listening. You're doing great. Better VQ matching. Great. Okay. I think that. What? What? What'd you say? That's always the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is. Oh, you are absolutely right. That's the first thing you should learn as a medical student. Is that whenever a pulmonologist pimps you, you should say ventilation, perfusion, matching. Right? Absolutely. So you. So we're just going to say. We're going to improve ventilation and perfusion matching, and I would agree with you. I think that we say, okay, those dorsal portions of the lung are highly perfused, not particularly well ventilated in ARDS. If we flip someone over, we'll improve the ventilation perfusion. I think that's why we saw oxygenation benefits in people we proned early on. But what about the, why was there a mortality benefit? And I think it's because there's this hypothesis that maybe you decrease ventilator-induced lung injury because you end up with an increased and expiratory volume because you change the mechanics of the respiratory system, because you might recruit alveoli, because you might change the mechanics of the chest wall, that you might make it stiffer and actually open up alveoli that you hadn't opened before. And maybe you minimize adelic trauma. Maybe you get airways and alveoli open that are staying open. And the reason I'm, hyper, I'm, I'm talking about this with proning is because Everything that I think is, we're going to talk about downstream is moving towards this idea of an open lung. Proning is part of that concept of an open lung model. And so part of it is ventilation perfusion matching. Like you said, that's always the right answer. But I think a bigger part of it is, do we actually change something so that we end up with a more open lung? And in doing so, improve our ability to minimize but not take away ventilator-induced lung injury. Okay? So those are the two things that they said. With a high level of confidence, we strongly recommend doing these things. Fine. There was one thing that they said don't do. They recommended against one thing. You're like, I can think of lots of things I recommend against. They all have to do, this actually has to do with how you ventilate or use mechanical ventilation. Anyone? Oscillator. oscillator. They said oscillators out. Since 2013, they said, And I know, I know there are some oscillator people here. I know that. And I'm not saying it needs to be out. I'm just telling you what the experts' uh, guidelines said. But they said in 2013, there were two trials published in the same edition of the New England Journal of Medicine. And Oscar showed no benefit, and oscillate showed a question of harm to using HFO. And based on that, they're going to come down and saying, let's not, let's not use high-frequency oscillator. Now, a couple things about that. Um, one, I think there's still people who believe that, there are, that it's the way they use the oscillator. And maybe you're one of those people. I don't know. No? OK. <laughs> OK. So uh, have you changed your mind about the oscillator? Did anyone buy it? <laughs> Well, I was gonna say I was like I. <laughs> so, I think that I think that there was an editorial by Jeff Drazen and Atul Mahotra in that edition of the New England Journal of Medicine, trying to say it's not the death of the oscillator, and maybe it's not the death of the oscillator, but oscillator. But for right now, I don't think we're gonna spend a lot of time talking about it. However, what was the concept of the high flow oscillator in terms of what we're doing to the lungs? What was the concept? Keep the lungs open. Yeah, it's going to keep coming back to that. Great. So keep the have an open lung. We're going to come back to this picture in a little bit, and ventilate with tiny, 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 tiny volumes and minimize volume trauma. Are those lights the heat lamps? Just out of curiosity, because if you're trying to sweat me out, <laughs> um, that you want the tiny, tiny volumes, and you want to stay up on that part of the compliance curve 
where you're holding everything open. We're going to talk about that more as we go forward. So that was it for their strong recommendations. Strongly in support of this stuff, strongly against high flow, uh, high flow, not strongly against high flow. I love high flow. Uh, uh, strongly against the oscillator. Okay. Then they made two conditional recommendations. And then they told me that they, they told us that they deferred discussion on these last two things, which is what I want to talk about the most. So what are the other two things that they said, well, we think you probably should consider these other two things. And I'm gonna, I, I've been having a theme, so they kind of match with the theme that I've been talking about. A couple of them, one of them's been mentioned already. Okay, so I'm gonna, okay, I heard paralysis, I heard peep, did I hear anything else? APRV, anything else? Put out what you think. Recruitment maneuvers, yeah? Dry or lung strides. Yeah, we heard facts before. Give me one, uh, any one other one I heard maybe over here? That's kind of killing me that you're kneeling there. We gotta, <laughs> I do often have my house staff kneel before me, but I, I don't know you. All right. Okay. A lot of the stuff that you said is on the list of things that they talked about, but I'm going to tell you which ones they made as conditional, and I'm going to tell you which ones they deferred commentary on, and then we're going to talk more about these ones. So, as was said before, they advocated for, to quote the article, higher PEEP as opposed to lower PEEP. I'm not entirely sure what that means, and we're going to talk about that more in a second. Um, and they advocated, the second thing they advocated for was for recruitment. And they said higher PEEP, and they specifically said in patients with moderate to severe ARDS, and they said this with moderate confidence, and they said recruitment in all patients with ARDS, and they said it with low, low to moderate confidence. Okay? And then they said, we're going to pass the buck for now, but we're not going to, on APRV, and we're going to pass the buck for now on neuromuscular blockade. So they did not make a recommendation on either of those two things, which will be interesting because we're going to talk about those. But they did recommend these two things, which are both strategies towards, again, what are we talking about? keeping the lung open, right? These are open lung strategies. And I think it's interesting that these both were supported based on our randomized controlled trials that have looked at both of these interventions, okay? So higher PEEP, the goal being, right, that in patients with stiff lungs, and I've drawn, drawn a com dynamic compliance curve of a patient that probably doesn't have ARDS because it looks way too pretty, right? But it's easier for me to draw pretty than to not draw pretty, so we're going to go with that right now. The goal, though, is to say, okay, if this is my lower inflection point of my inspiratory limb, right, I'd like to find a peep that holds me above this lower inflection point and be able to ventilate the patient here, which is a, you know, I don't, it's probably not a great inflection point. We'll call this the upper inflection point. Somewhere in this space, above the lower inflection point, below the upper inflection point. And potentially having a higher level of PEEP will allow me to do that. Now before I ask you the next question, I'm just curious. If you had to say, like, I'm a high, high PEEP person, like I believe in high PEEP, I think that's a good strategy in general. Who in the room says, I'm, I'm in, I think high PEEP is the way we should go? Who's like, I think PEEP can be deleterious and so I'm concerned about giving so much PEEP? Who's like, I have no idea what to do with PEEP. Okay. All right, I'm glad that you're so honest, Sam. That's awesome. All right. I want, so I would put myself in the category of thinking that it's worth trying high PEEP for most patients, but I'm not sure that I'm a believer in high PEEP for everyone because I'm a believer in the S of ARDS and that it's a syndrome and that we have to figure out what that, that right PEEP is. So I'm going to ask you to talk to the person next to you or near you that you maybe know, maybe don't know. If you don't know them, introduce yourself. If you know each other too well, turn the <laughs> other way. <laughs> and I want to understand how you figure out what's the right PEEP for your patient or how you could set higher PEEP. How, how, are, we gonna, how are we gonna move forward with higher PEEP is better than lower PEEP? What are we gonna do to get higher PEEP is better than lower PEEP and why? Okay, I'm gonna give you a minute to talk. <laughs> I want to get out whatever you want to do. I want to get out whatever you want to do. I want to get out whatever you want to do. I want to get out whatever you want to do. I want to get out whatever you want to do. I want to get out whatever you want to do. I want to get out whatever you want to do. I want to get out whatever you
by the way? Mustafa. Mustafa. I'm going to absolve you from having to answer because you've been awesome. Thank you. Participant. But I wanted to say that by name, but I didn't know it. Mustafa. Okay. Okay, you've just demonstrated to me that you like an interactive format because you got the opportunity to talk to each other and you went crazy. I don't know if you were planning dinner or if you were actually figuring out the peep, but I'm gonna go with the fact that you were talking about peep. So does someone wanna tell me how they, what, they, what they discussed? And you can always be like, that's what he said. If, if people are thinking it's kinda weird. And don't worry, I know some of your names. Mustafa is absolved because he's been a champion answerer in the front row, so anybody else? What'd you talk about? How are you gonna How are you gonna figure out peep? What are you gonna do? Predict if we want to do higher. Well, we yeah. talked about how we would, if we wanted to increase peep, we increase it, but watch all their other stats to make sure that they are going the right direction. So if we hit a point where they're not, then we need to stop. Okay, like what? Okay, I like to figure out why always. I like that. Yeah, you want to add to that? Yeah, we were talking about how we dose it and. Dose it. I like it. Figure out where you're up on the inflection point. Uh -huh. Basically, in doing incremental increases in P while watching your plateau pressure. Okay. And how driving that up, you know, at a proportionate amount to the P, and then when it rises at a disproportionate amount, then you know you're kind of at that upper inflection point, and you need to kind of settle just a little bit below that. Uh huh. Keeping hemodynamics and stuff, you know, you know, in your mind that you're doing. Okay, so you're thinking that if I hit the place where I turn the P up by two, and my plateau pressure goes up by six then I've probably over-descended the lung and now I've moved into that flat part of the compliance per curve. So you're using stepwise increments of your PEEP and maybe static compliance to come up with your ideal PEEP. Is that right? Okay. Yes. Can I just question that, just to clarify also, yeah. you say higher PEEP, are you talking about <laughs> a ladder of the PEEP or are you talking about like the alveoli trial and love and express? Ah. I love it. Now we know who the evidence-based medicine person is. I so, trained at Penn. Um, I think the answer is if you actually read the guidelines, I don't know the answer to what you just said to me, asked me. And they allude to a variety of different ways we could try to figure out PEEP. And one of them is to say, higher PEEP is better. We should use a, a high PEEP ladder and use the high peep ladder from, you mentioned a bunch of trials, so let's just write them down real quickly. Alveoli, which was, who did alveoli? Oh, I was gonna ask Helen, because she told me that she says ARDSnet, but she calls it ARDS, right? <laughs> yeah, and I do too. So that was, the, you're right, it's the ARDSnet group from 2004, also published in the New England Journal of Medicine, stopped early because of futility, right, in comparing high peep ladder versus low peep ladder. Do you guys use a high peep ladder here? No. Do you have one? Yeah. No. You have one, but you don't use it. You have the original ARMA ladder? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then Alveoli had a higher PEEP ladder. And some places have both that you can choose between when you order. Do you have that? Okay. So some institutions do that. Yeah, I'm sure that you could still do it. But <laughs> do you guys have the cards? <laughs> we won't ask you to pull them out of your pockets. So for those of you who don't remember the alveoli trial, do you know kind of gisty what the what the peeps were like in the alveoli trial? They were five centimeters higher than the well, well, that's what the separation was in the arms when they looked at it, that it ended up being about five centimeters of water difference between the two arms. But just to give a gist of the, the higher peep ladder for people who haven't used that peep ladder, it was a peep of 22 to 24 for an FiO2 of 1 down to about an FiO2 of 0.8. And then it stated a PEEP of 20 until you got to 0.5. And then it stated a PEEP of 16 until you got to 0.3. Okay? So that's a much higher PEEP ladder. Does anyone in the room use a ladder like that right now? That is almost exactly the ladder that's being used in the ROSE trial. That's the study from PEDAL, the kind of new ARDSnet for prevention and early treatment of acute lung injury. That they're, both arms are using that much higher peep ladder. So one thing that they said was maybe the answer is to use a high peep ladder. I find that I, I personally find that ironic because I would argue that alveoli was a negative trial and it was stopped early. And then you mentioned two other trials: the Loves trial and the Express trial. 
both of which were published in JAMA in 2008, about 750 patients and about 1,000 patients between 1,000 in Loves and 750 in Express. And Loves did pretty much the same idea in terms of a peep ladder. They also had a really high peep ladder, but they had a whole bundle to do what we're calling here, we're going to call this our open lung. So they did recruitment. Loves did recruitment too. They recruited patients as soon as they intubated them and then they recruited them periodically. And they allowed a higher plateau pressure. Again, didn't show mortality benefit. Did show some pathophys uh, some mechanical oxygenation benefits. And Express did kind of a variation on what you guys were talking about in terms of mechanics. Do you, does anyone know what they did in Express in terms of PEEP? Yeah, it sort of was, it sort of um, defied logic. They, they, <laughs> they, they used the low tidal volume, they fixed the plateau pressure at yeah. 28 to 30, and they increased the PEEP. Until they achieved uh, a plateau pressure. Until they achieved the peak, which means they used a higher peak than the more, uh, they used a higher peak in the more compliant. Yeah, that's right, because it was an interesting model that doesn't, I would agree with you, make a ton of sense. And they targeted their peak to achieving a plateau pressure of 28 to 30, which is really different than I think any of the ways we do peak. So they mentioned. Maybe we should go back to using a high PEEP ladder. And I will tell you that the ROSE trial is intentionally including the high PEEP ladder in what they're doing in studying ARDS, and we'll talk about what they're studying in a second, um, with this wonder about should we be having more patients on higher PEEP. Okay, so that's another option. So we talked about kind of slowly titrating up, and there's formal ways and less formal ways to do that titration of PEEP and, and actually assess mechanics. I don't know if you guys talk about that in your mechanical ventilation course. Yes? Yeah, do you guys teach stress index on that? Okay, so we won't go into it right now, but that would be another way that you could um, assess PEEP. Did anybody else come with any other ways to, to find the right PEEP or how you set your PEEP? Transpulmonary pressure. Transpulmonary pressure, okay. So how are we going to figure out our trans, I, I love it, how are we going to figure out my transpulmonary pressure? <clears throat> You need a balloon. You need a balloon. So, yeah, you, you just, I think you say something like you just throw in a balloon, right? Exactly. Exactly. So, you, so Mustafa said, I think it's not the, the airway opening pressure that matters, or maybe you don't personally, but you're arguing that. I think it's the transpulmonary pressure. And you said that transpulmonary pressure is P in minus P out, which in this case is P alveolar minus P plural. And in order to achieve that, you would put it in an esophageal balloon, right? Your mic can search. Does anyone here do that? We were on Danny Talmor's study, but we didn't OK. You were part of EpiVent 2? OK. All right. Are people familiar with EpiVent, the first trial? Have you heard of this? So in, in, at BI Deaconess, uh, a number of years ago now, almost a decade ago, they did a small trial at that institution of trying to titrate PEEP based on transpulmonary pressure. They were measuring pleural pressure using an esophageal balloon and titrating their PEEP based on that. And what they found was that they had remarkably better outcomes, but their outcomes that they set up a priori were all, all physiologic and not around mortality. They found better oxygenation, better compliance of the lungs. And in that setting, they stopped the trial early because of the fact that they met their endpoints, and they stopped it with 61 patients. So I feel a little bit hard-pressed to say that that guides our management, which is why they set up EpiVent 2, which is about to finish enrolling, which has been a long time. And hopefully we'll see what happens when they actually have a multi-center trial looking at finding the right PEEP with esophageal balloon. Did you say you had trouble getting patients enrolled? Is that the well, challenge? Yes. So one, of the, one of the problems is that exclusion criteria includes proning. And since 2013, by the time you qualify for the EpiVent 2 study, um, a lot of patients are going to be proned. OK. Yeah, I agree with you. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what they find. Excellent.
I would agree. And I actually think, in general, it's, we're still not entirely sure that the esophageal balloon pressure is going to really truly reflect pleural pressure. So we could spend a whole time talking about esophageal balloons. I think the take home is there's no really right way to figure out the right PEEP. There's a lot of different things that you could try. I'm going to argue against the latter, but I will tell you that the guidelines suggest looking at the ladders that were used in these two trials. And that potentially using mechanics in some form, and I, bless you, I think we could again talk about that for a long time. And maybe in some patients, esophageal blue makes sense. But again, higher PEEP is going to work if we think that by using higher PEEP, we can get over this lower inflection point and improve the patient. <coughs> a show of hands in anybody, for people who turned the patient's PEEP up and the patient's oxygenation immediately got worse. Has anyone had that happen? <laughs> right, exactly. So not everybody's benefiting from high PEEP. And I think we generally think over distension, a good lung, redirecting blood flow to the bad lung, more shunt physiology, desaturation. But I think we're also over distending the good lung and probably causing more ventilator-induced lung injury. So if we're doing that, we're not making things better by just giving higher PEEP. Last thing here, real quickly, recruitment. Who, who in this room does regular recruitment of their patients with ARDS? All right, Nirav, tell us why you do it and what you do. So I do third, uh, follow 30 centimeters of water pressure for 30 seconds for 40 for 40. Um, I'll do it when, I'm, when my back is against the wall usually and I'm having to, I know I'm going to go up on the peak because I'm, I've come in and the peak is lower than where I want it to be. You think you're down here in this flat part of the compliance curve and you're trying to get up over that? Yep. Open them up and then come down to a peak that's higher than where they were set. Okay. And you do it on a regular basis or you only do it when? For my severe ARDS. Okay. Anybody else do it any more regularly than that? When you say regular, you mean more than once in the same patient? Yes. More than once in the same patient. And you do, right? In this. Yeah. Okay. I think that from, I would say my practice is not dissimilar to yours in that I would periodically use it, but in no way have it as part of my standard of care. I'm also somewhat surprised by the fact that this is one of the things that they are saying to consider on a regular basis. I think we know that it was part of the bundle in loves that didn't show a benefit. We know that they did it for the first 80 patients in alveoli who were on the high PEEP arm and it didn't show a significant benefit, meaning that their numbers got better very transiently and then they fell again so they didn't keep doing it. You could, Nerv could say, like, I believe in recruitment maneuvers, and those people didn't set the PEEP high enough after they did the recruitment maneuver, so they moved them up here, and then they didn't hold them up here, so they slipped back down, and that's why they did worse. You can make a lot of arguments, but I think the long and short of it is that this is, this is less about, I think, doing recruitment, and more about the, that these recommendations are really embracing this idea of open lung, and that they are overall saying that we think that adelect trauma is a bigger deal than we are appreciating and that holding things open is a good way to go. Okay? Questions about any of that before I shift gears? Oh, comments. Gentlemen in the back. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Well, so, you're probably a better question. <laughs> no, I, I, it's a, it almost as much the same as a question, but uh, so I'm an old fart nihilist here. You're an old fart. Uh, and, uh, I love that. And that's my support structure. Uh, so uh, actually, um, this whole discussion you just had, which was terrific, is making the presumption that PEEP is almost therapeutic. Yep. Okay? And to me, I'm like going, I don't know if it's really therapeutic. I think allectatic trauma is a big deal. I think over distension is a big deal. So as long as you're in that sweet spot, as far as I'm concerned, you should have the peak just high enough to get your FiO2 down so we're not causing oxygen toxicity. Right. And in fact, all these artificial numbers, which I believe having done the esophageal stuff, uh -huh. that will never work. <laughs> I will tell you, you could waste all the time in the world uh, for some of the reasons Carl said, and getting if you move the balloon two centimeters, you get a totally different number. Yep, I agree with you. you the patient, your numbers all Yep. So which numbers are really real? Uh, it's kind of like our PA catheter conversations, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't even go there. <laughs> but, uh, so, so anyhow, so I will titrate PEEP to try and get the FiO2 down as long as I think I'm in that sweet spot. Well, I think that what you raised there is, and maybe you're going to say this is also these newfangled young people's theories. I think that that kind of pertains to this idea of delta pressure, uh, driving pressure, and that maybe the right thing to do is to get that combination of PEEP that gives you an adequate oxygenation and tidal volume that's not too big but not too small, that gives you the smallest 
driving pressure. And I think that those are the same yeah. concepts, exactly. actually. Yeah. Yeah. Including oxygen toxicity. And uh, there was something else I was going to say about pruning, but I'll let you go. Okay. No, I mean, I, I, I don't necessarily disagree with you. I'm kind of trying to go to the principles. And I think this is a very vague recommendation. And I don't know that it's right. And that's why I think what they're really advocating is they want to try to keep lung that's open, open. Right. Well, so one other quick comment on that, and I apologize. No, that's um, why it's interactive. When you asked before about have patients who plummet their oxygenation yeah. put on the PEEP, I think that problem is getting worse because we're keeping the patients drier now. We're creating more yeah. physiology. And in fact, I shouldn't admit this in public, I have given patients a half liter or a liter of fluid when their oxygenation drops and they get better. <laughs> and that goes against everything. Yeah, fair about. enough. But there are those patients out there. Your comment before that S is the most important part of the ARDS syndrome, different patients will respond differently. I agree. And we really have to be careful about these hard and fast rules. And I think that's why I said at the very beginning, kind of, I think that these are guidelines. They're things to get you thinking. But I agree with you 100% that every patient's an individual patient. And being at the bedside, touching the ventilator is, and the patient both at the same time, are the ways to figure this out. Did you have? I just very briefly. They, I believe there was there a study like in the nineties or something. Oh no! Come on. About open lung. There's been a lot of studies about open lung. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, it's not a new concept. But the fact is, the thing that's interesting is a bunch of these trials. It, yeah, Gattioni loves it. They want it to be true, and despite the fact that our randomized control trials aren't necessarily showing it to be true, it's still coming through in these guidelines. Last comment. So what about um, the real meta-analysis that shows it was the sicker patients, you know, the ones with low PF ratios that were more recruitable and may benefit from the high peak? What about giving a recruitment maneuver first and see that they're going to benefit from the peak before you use the higher peak ladder? I think that would be a reasonable part of potentially using mechanical approach to doing it, and I think there are a lot of people who do it that way. I, I, don't, I don't think any of these things are actually shown to be right. I know the meta-analysis you're talking about, and I think, again, that's why they're making these caveats for the moderate to severe ARDS based on those same data. Okay, I'm going to move us forward, because here's the real dilemma. Here are the two things that people, that they didn't talk about, APRV or neuromuscular blockade. So I'm just kind of curious of the, of the folks in the room, and I, it's good, we have a spectrum of perspectives, which is awesome. If you had a patient with really bad ARDS, would you be more likely to put them on neuromuscular blockade and take away their interaction with the ventilator, or think about changing to a mode like APRV, and we'll talk about APRV more in a minute. Okay. Yep. Well, I'm going to give you the choice. I haven't given you the time to vote yet. Do both. Oh, oh, that's perfect. I'm excited about do both. Okay. Who says neuromuscular blockade? And who says APRV? There's strong presence of the respiratory therapist on that one. Okay. And then I heard them looking at people who work in the unit and said, I heard people say I would do both. Who says they would do both? APRV and neuromuscular blockade. That's interesting because I would make it, I would put out there that it seems to me that the majority of the benefit of APRV includes the ability to do spontaneous breathing. So I'm going to be interested to hear of somebody who wants to argue for both. Okay, so. Um, <laughs> Did you miss the beginning of my talk when I said we're not going to talk about ECMO? I said that at the beginning. Okay. I'm going to give you another 30 seconds to talk to the person. Actually, I'm going to talk more about APRV, and I'm going to get you guys to talk about APRV. But let's talk about neuromuscular blockade for a second. I want you to come up with two reasons why you would do it, and two reasons why it might not be a good thing to do. So chat with each other for a second. Why yes, why no? Pathophysiology.
quickly because we lost some AV time at the beginning. Okay, what's good about neuromuscular blockade? Holler them out. What's, a, what's an advantage of neuromuscular blockade? What do you say? Synchrony. Synchrony. It's actually like total control, right? <laughs> Those of us who like to have total control like the neuromuscular blockade because then you control the interaction between the patient and the ventilator and they're not interacting with it at all. Okay, good. Give me another reason why neuromuscular blockade might be good. We could go back to your one from before. Cisatricurium is the elixir of goodness and decreases inf inflammation. Okay, another good reason. Okay, so you're improving mechanics with that. And it, oh. 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 All right. Okay, okay. Oh, 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 oh. Hang in there with me. Okay. Anything else that people want to say? What's the downside? Weakness. More sedation, more, maybe that leads to more delirium. Weakness, maybe leads to less mobility. Maybe that leads to harder to get off the ventilator, maybe harder to get out of the ICU, et cetera. And we could debate the mobility for a long time. Half of a ATS was debating mobility as far as I could tell. Okay, so there's some good things and some bad things. I think one thing that I would argue is this is kind of a dichotomous decision between the patient not moving and us taking total control of the situation and the patient actually being allowed to interact with the ventilator. And I think it's you got to fall on one side or the other that in severe ARDS you're going to take total control or you're going to let the patient interact with the ventilator. And my personal opinion is that I fall more on the side of this, neuromuscular blockade and taking control of the, of the patient's interaction with the ventilator completely and you could make an argument that you decrease the work of breathing with neuromuscular blockade, you decrease O2 consumption, etc. But I don't. I think there's some equipoise here still on, on the use of APRV. So I think it's worth discussing. So I would argue that APRV should be used when patients are not paralyzed. And if you make the decision to use neuromuscular blockade, in some ways you're making a decision not to use APRV. Now there may be people in the room who disagree with that, and I'm happy to hear that. But in general, the benefits of APRV have been more about the fact that the patient can interact with the ventilator. They require less sedation. They use their diaphragm and some of that dorsal atelectasis and consolidation gets better in the setting of using their diaphragm. There's some stuff about hemodynamics making it better. So I, I think there are reasons why there are some data that suggests, and I know shock trauma is a big place for trauma patients to use APRV, that this is a reasonable option, but I think it's a pretty dichotomous option to be, to be frank. And I think the, the safety part of it is what we're going to talk about in terms of the APRV what's going on with APRV. So whenever I talk about a mode of ventilation, I like to start off by talking about how is this ventilator setting triggered, how is this ventilator setting cycled, and how is this ventilator setting limited. So APRV, how is it triggered? Time. It's a time-triggered mode. How is it cycled? Time. How is it limited? Pressure. I could write those exact same things and call it a different mode of ventilation. Right? That's pressure control ventilation, effectively. Right? And if a patient is interacting with pressure control ventilation and not initiating their breaths either by, not triggering breaths by either flow or pressure, then they're the same. And bi-level is on that spectrum too. But what's different about APRV? What are we, what are we having happen in APRV? So you're gonna, but you can do inverse ratio and pressure control ventilation. As a matter of fact, when I was a trainee, that's what we did for every single patient who was hypoxemic, is that we would do uh, inverse ratio pressure control ventilation, yes? Okay. That's how it started. You turned with John Yes, I did. Yeah, you can spontaneously breathe in these areas, and actually in these areas too, right? You can actually spontaneously breathe throughout that situation. And 
and if the patient's not interacting with the ventilator, you're really not doing anything different than pressure control ventilation, just to be clear. So if you're neuromuscularly blocking them, you're not doing anything different than pressure control ventilation with a really long eye time. But with that in mind, let's talk about these settings real quickly, and then we'll talk about how this may or may not, the things that we have to pay attention to when we're using this mode. So this is the first thing I think about when I talk about a ventilator. The second thing I talk about are the things that I set, and I keep track of the things that I monitor. So what are the things, folks who are using APRV on a regular basis around here, what are the things you're setting? P high, P low, and T high, T low. And what are you monitoring? What are you keeping? And an FiO2, okay, so we're all always going to set an FiO2. What else, what are we monitoring? How do you know that your patient's doing okay? Because one of the things we talked about in rounds this morning is what's the best mode of ventilation for any patient? What was yours? None. That's the best answer. None. Well, not like no ventilation, but no mechanical ventilation, right? We're not trying to not ventilate them at all. But I think it's the one that everyone understands. Because if people in the room, everyone doesn't understand the ventilator and the mode that they're on, then bad things happen to the patient. So what are you monitoring in, in APRV? How are you telling that you've got it set correctly? Tidal volume. So I heard tidal volume. And I'm, I will agree with that, but I'm going to say... Yes, okay, good. And it's your release volume. We'll put it here a little bit separately. So you want to know what you're, what's coming out. What else are you monitoring? Yeah, I actually think that's super important. You got to pay attention to your minute ventilation because if you're not paying attention to your minute ventilation and if the person's not interacting with the ventilator, what happens? They get hypercarbic. Wait, what else are you going to monitor? Anything else? I, okay, how do you how do you monitor that? Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, I think the way I probably the one thing that I pay attention to is when I look at the flow tracing on expiration, how close to back to baseline I'm getting in terms of my expiratory flow. And this is one of those things that I think is debatable. I'm curious what people in the room do with this. When APRV earlier APRV, where we probably had 75, 80% of the time at P high, we actually got down to, to P low. Um, I think now more often we're using a longer percentage of P high, closer to 90% of the time at P high. And often you're not reaching your P low, and you might set your P low at zero and know that you're never going to get to zero. You kind of drop and jump right back up, right? So how do you figure out what that, that T low should be? Well, I use my flow to do that, and I think I, by gestalt, use that to assess how much auto-peep there is by saying, where am I in that expiratory flow curve when the next breath is initiated? I don't know if other people do something different to assess that in APRV. What number do I pick to do? I pick somewhere between 50% and 25% of the peak expiratory flow, so somewhere in that range. And it's imperfect, but that's the, the gist of what I use to try to figure out how short t the, the time low should be. That's what I generally use. So you're, start, you're actually you're, you're ending it even faster and bumping it back up. So we go a little lower. We still don't actually generally hit p low when we do that. Okay. And then I think you have to actually pay attention to gas exchange more than you have to pay attention to gas exchange in a lot of other modes of ventilation. So I think it's important to actually pay attention to your gas exchange a bit more closely, particularly with this concept of you have a certain amount of minute ventilation from your release volumes, but you also have a certain amount of minute ventilation from your spontaneous volumes. And paying attention to that and actually what's happening to your CO2 is going to be more important here. And I am personally of the mindset of making the T low quite short. So we start at 0.5. I don't know what you guys start with in terms of your T low. So we start with 0.5 and usually 4 or sometimes 5 seconds on our T high. And we generally pick our P high based on where somebody was with their conventional ventilation and their plateau pressure. Okay? I can tell these guys do APRV a lot right here. This is like my nodding section for the APRV. 
Um, and I would argue this mode is okay as long as you're keeping track of stuff because now you're allowing the patient with severe ARDS to interact with the ventilator. And their ability to have larger swings in pressure and volume is definitely more than you would have in this setting where you have taken complete control of the situation. And I'll put my, my nickel down. My nickel is going down a neuromuscular blockade for now. I think that there will be more to come on APRV. There's going to be more to come on recruitment maneuvers. There's two trials now that are ongoing looking at recruitment maneuvers. There will be probably more to come on esophageal balloons. So there's more out there. And while I think, I actually think this mode is sometimes better when patients are moving towards getting better in ARDS, and it's a way to start to liberate them, as opposed to use when somebody has severe ARDS. Do, do you uh, okay? Yeah. So when they're getting better, I, I just want a little caveat because I'm probably the only person in this room that uses swans, but <laughs> I use a lot. Of okay. That's the reason I use a lot of it because of pulmonary hypertension in ARDS. Yeah. And I can tell you, we've got we've done some patients and we've shown this that APRV puts a lot of strain on the RV. Yes. A lot of strain. Okay. And if you measure, and I'm sure none of you have done this, but if you measure a true pulmonary artery mixed venous SVO2 on APRV. Watch it because it will drop. Oh, I mean, it will drop. And you have to be very careful on how much pressure you're dialing in because you can really get some RV. You already have RV strain from the pulmonary hypertension. So now all of a sudden you're really decreasing pulmonary as, flow. As you're bumping so up you your main airway pressure. On APRV, Thank you. I didn't talk about the hemodynamic effects, but I think it's an important part of right. all of this. Thank you for highlighting that. Okay, for the sake of time, some big take homes. One, there are a few things that I think we feel kind of strongly about are ones that we do with most patients with ARDS. I'm going to support both of these. I'm going to support the no high-frequency high oscillator, sorry. Um, and then I think there's a lot out there that we still don't understand about. Is it right to have an open lung? Where is that level of PEEP that's right? How do we figure out what that, peep is, that level of PEEP is right? Is there a best way to get over this? lower inflection point. On these, I'm going to fall on the side of taking control of the patient and using neuromuscular blockade so that you can have control. But I think there is some space for APRV, and I think we have to figure out where that is better in the future. There's ample material here for anyone who wants to be an investigator when they grow up. There's lots more to study. And I think the last message I'll leave you with is, and I only talked about the playing with the ventilator a little bit, is at the end of the day, the place you learn about the ventilator is not in this room or even across the hall, right? Where do you learn it? At the bedside. So it's always a little bit, you feel a bit disingenuous talking about management of a ventilator in a, in a classroom because what you got to do is go play with these things and try to figure them out as you take care of patients. Thank you so much for letting me come. I'm happy to chat with anyone who wants to come up and chat. And thanks for being willing to sit in this room and be interactive. All right. <laughs>